0: It's really good to, to have everybody that's here with us this morning. Um, I know a lot, of, a lot of our group is probably traveling um, for the Labor Day weekend. and That's probably what's brought many of you to us, so it's kind of a trade-off, but we're glad to, to have you with us here. Um, this morning, I want to talk about uh, an idea that I've had in the past. I've thought some about it. Um, I've, I've thought a lot about it in preparing for this lesson again and kind of changed some of my thoughts on it. From the last time I thought about it. And that is, considering who God is, and specifically this morning, I wanna, want us to all think about how God really is a warrior. Um, I, I think in my life, and maybe this is true for you too, I don't know. You can think about this. When I think about God, I think of uh, the roles God has. And maybe the first one that comes to your mind is maybe he's a creator, right? You think of Genesis and how he created the world and everything that we know. Or maybe you think about how he's a savior, right? Um, He did what he needed to do to make people uh, know salvation, right? That he's a redeemer, that he had some uh, role in buying you, right? He created you, but he bought you back as well from sin. Maybe he's a guide, right? You think about him giving you some sort of uh, guidance in your life. Maybe you think of him as hope, right? Like he is the hope that you have. Maybe you think about another role that he has as being a teacher, right? Similar to a guide, he's teaching or leading you in a way. And I think these are all good roles that the Bible tells us that God fills, right? Um, Especially if you're a follower of God, if you would say that you're a Christian, these are roles that you should allow God to fill, right? But I don't know if I do as much of a good job as thinking about God as a warrior, right? Like as a fighter, a picture of a of someone valiant and strong. I think we do sometimes maybe we think about him that way when he comes to like judgment, right? We think about him like coming and sifting through the good and the bad, right? But I think this portrait of God as a warrior is more than just about judgment. And I want to talk about that this morning. The first little bit of what I want to talk about was from Exodus chapter fifteen. And if you uh have your Bibles, if you you can, open it back up to that spot. Exodus chapter 15. kind of worked out for us this morning that we began our Bible study going through the book of Exodus, and we're going to be in that book for several weeks as we study through kind of roughly chapter by chapter. Um, Going through that book, and our study is not so much about God being a warrior. Our study is focusing in on the promises of God and how He delivers on those promises and how faithful He is and what the promises are, and how they relate to those who are following him. But certainly when you read the book of Exodus, you can't escape the fact that God is a warrior, right? Um, In a lot of ways, the book of Exodus serves as a portrait of the gospel, right? You think about Exodus and the Israelites, the plight of Israelites, right, was the oppression of Egypt. Well, the plight of people today is the oppression of sin, right? And so God steps in in the book of Exodus, and he says, I hear your cries, I'm going to save you. Right Today, God hears, has heard our cries, has heard the oppression of sin, and he's saved us through Jesus. And so we could keep going back and forth of this portrait of the gospel, even in the book of Exodus. But I think it's no coincidence that if we consider the book of Exodus as a portrait of the gospel, that God is the strong arm in that book, that he is the fighter. He's, it's not the people saving themselves from Their oppression. It's not really the people even doing anything other than fleeing, right? And so we see God is pictured as a warrior. So in the wake of God's great delivery from Egypt, right, he says to the Israelites, you need to leave uh, when Pharaoh sends you out. Just take and leave. Well, in chapter 15, we have kind of the flight of the Israelites and they finally succeed in being able to leave Egypt and they kind of look back at Egypt and they think God deserves some praise for what he's just done for us so you have in chapter 15 really it's just one big song right you have Moses and it says the children of Israel the Israelites sang this song and we read 11 verses of it a moment ago but let's focus in on verse 2 and 3 the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. <clears throat> this is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Depending on your translation, your, your Bible may even say, is a warrior. Um, I believe ESV says that. There may be some other translations that say that. And that's the idea, right? The Lord is a man of war or is a warrior. You know, this is really a declaration of who God is in this chapter. This is uh, kind of the Israelites discovering or knowing more clearly who is Jehovah, right? There's a lot of gods back in Egypt, and we know through this Bible story that they were very familiar with those gods. In fact, they worshipped some of them, at least some of the Israelites did. And so, when you actually look at the language of this in verse 2, the word the Lord is actually uh, a specific name for God, right? It's Jehovah, um, Yahweh. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So, this is identifying who is this God? He is strength, he is our shout or our song, he is salvation. This is my, and in, in Hebrew this is El, it's just like God. Like, this is my God. Like, you have your God, we have our God, just that kind of word, God, right? He is my God, right? and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Jehovah, now here's the specific again, is a man of war. So I've chosen my God, I've been shown my God, Jehovah's his name, and he is a warrior. It's a declaration, right? Egypt has their gods, their Els, but they're not Jehovah and they're not warriors, right? God defeated them. And so I think this is a really exciting and interesting passage just because we see, like, right from the get-go, they're saying, hey, we notice something about this God and Jehovah's a warrior. Of all the characteristics that God has given... Throughout the scripture, one of the first is that he is a man of war. And it's not in the sense of like he's here to to divide and deride and just oppress, maybe like Egypt was. He's a man of war, having given his people a victory. You notice that? It's not like a selfish war, it's a completely selfless war. He fought for them to save them, because he had made, as we talked about this morning, a covenant, Right? And so I think this is really important. When we're we're introduced to God, when Israel is introduced to God, one of the big things that they see about him is that he's a warrior. And a warrior on their behalf. It says that he's brought salvation, right? He is our song. He is our salvation. And so I want to focus in on this. um, And look at chapter 15 again. Look at some of the weapons that God is fighting with, right? You know, Egypt had their chariots, and they had their swords and their spears, and they had numbers, right? They had a lot of trained fighters. But if you look in chapter 15, look at verse 6. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So God's right hand shatters and swallows the enemy. In verse 12, that's what it says. You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. God's hand is providing power and control, right? In verse 7, God's majesty topples and consumes. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble, right? So God's got a right hand that shatters and controls the earth and swallows the enemy. His majesty, right? That's not even something we think of as being physical, right? Just like his presence, his, his glory, is so overwhelming that it topples and consumes. God's nostrils turn the raging sea to his advantage. That's a verses eight through ten. Um, the blast of your nostrils, the waters pile up, and the flood stood up in a heap, the deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue and overtake. I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, and my hand shall destroy him. So the enemy thinks. But you blew with your wind, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. <clears throat> just the breath of God's nostrils. That's... Now, this is all poetic language, right? This is all language that, you know, it, we don't see any literal, like, hand coming out and doing this. We don't know that when the waters came over Egypt, it was because God breathed out of his nose. But the picture is, God is a warrior, and he just conquered a whole nation. And so his right hand is stronger than any weapon that Egypt had. It's just the breath of his nostrils that conquered the whole nation of Egypt. And then last, God's terror and dread seizes enemies, verses 14 through 16. So you get this picture. Israel is crying out to God at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Like We're being oppressed. We're having to make bricks and mortar. Our kids are being killed. And so they're crying out, Jehovah, God of our fathers, this this covenantal God of Abraham. Come and save us. Right? Perhaps they remember the promise, the prophecy that they would be oppressed for a while. And they're saying, hey, time's now. Right? Well, when God introduces himself, he says back in Exodus 3, 2 and 3, I'm the God of your fathers. Right? Remember. Well, when Moses says, who am I going to say sent me? Say, I am sent you. Right? Evoking a sense of remembering. God of the covenant, but when he acts, who does he look like? A God of war, a valiant warrior stronger than any nation, right? I think this is important. I don't do a good job of thinking about God like this, you know? And I think it's appropriate when we think about God being gentle and loving and patient and kind because those are characteristics that the Bible extols about God and just talks about over and over and over again, right? But the Bible is also very clear that God isn't weak because of those things. Um, and I think it's hard for us to harmonize that, to think that God is patient and loving, but that he's also like, strong and a valiant warrior, and he will conquer his enemies. That's tough. That's, that's hard for me to wrestle with both of those things. But that is the portrait that we have of God. I'm just going to run through these pretty quickly, and it's just three examples. In Exodus 14, we have God defeating Egypt, right? He defeats a whole nation um, through an almost nation that doesn't really do anything. They just kind of leave. They just get out of there, right? And God says, here's some stuff to take with you. You ask your neighbor, and they're going to give it to you because they're tired of you, right? God totally does that on his own. He just wins that battle, right? Uh, against the Philistines, we see the Philistines come up a lot in Israel's history. But if you go to uh, 1 Samuel 17, we see David conquer Goliath in that instance, right? And he does it for God, right? And we know that God does much more than that as those stories unfold, and especially in David's life, we see him continue to defeat and defeat and defeat any opposition arises, not only from the Philistines, but some others. If you go to... Uh 2 Chronicles 14, we don't often think of this example, at least I don't, but the Ethiopians rise up against Israel. and In fact, in that specific story, Asa is the king of that time, and the Ethiopians come up against Israel, and it tells us how many of them, and it says there's one million. I've never seen an army of a million people except maybe on TV, and I'm sure that's not accurate at all, but I imagine that's a scary sight. See a million people come up to fight against you. And Asa basically says, Lord, there's nothing we can do. We just look to you, right? And God defeats an army of a million people. That's just three examples, just three quick that I thought of. Let's just jot these down and so I can share them. Three examples of Israel's history of how God by himself really fought and won a battle. A physical fight. If we continued in Moses' life, we'd see that some more. We, if we continued in Joshua's life, we'd see that even more, right? God fights for his people, and God is never lost. I think that's an interesting thing to consider. I think the best warriors uh, in history lose a fight eventually, Right? If they're lucky enough to survive a lost fight, maybe they're a better fighter for it, right? But they always lose at some point. God has never lost a fight. He's never lost a battle that he's engaged in. Um, and so for us to think that God is a warrior is really important. And the reason I bring this up isn't just to say, like, hey, think about this thing that you probably don't think about enough, Right? That can be helpful sometimes, just to think about an aspect of God you don't consider on your day-to-day. But I think if we consider God as a warrior, it's really going to help us in our walk with God. And what I mean by that, and I'm going to have some very specific examples, the more well-rounded our concept of God can be, the way he describes himself, the more accurately we can think and dwell on all those things, the more complete we're going to be as Christians as we consider our faith. And the more ready we're going to be as things try to tempt us or weaken us to understand how God's operating, how God succeeds, how God works his plan. Um, if, for instance, if I'm tempted to believe that God is only love, then I'm going to really struggle with justice, right? Like, well, then why is bad stuff going on? How come he doesn't just do this or that or whatever? I think God is only justice, then I'm going to have a hard time with mercy, right? And so we see how that can be a difficult thing. And so I think sometimes we don't think about God as a warrior enough. Isaiah 42 verse 13 says this, the Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse his zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, he will raise a war cry. He will prevail against his enemies. You know, Israel had a hard time remembering that God was a warrior, (laughs) Back when he was supposed to be their, their general and their king, right, fighting physical battles most of the, a lot of time for them, seeing the outcome of these battles, they even had a hard time remembering that he was a warrior. He fought for his people. So they needed reminders like this in Isaiah's day. He had to say, hey, God is a man of war, right? He will utter a shout and he will raise a war cry. And what will he do? He will prevail against his enemies. In Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, it reads, In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Don't be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Israel needed to to remember sometimes that they could trust in their God because he was a warrior. When they needed a battle to be won, God was there to win it, right? In physical ways against, like, the Philistines or the Egyptians or the Ethiopians, but also in spiritual ways. He was their spiritual champion. He gave them the law. He taught them how to be right before him. He taught them how to be close to him, right? Right? And so Israel needed to trust that he was, he was a warrior and that he fought for them. Uh, but also with this, to understand for Israel, for Israel to understand that God was a warrior was really a reminder that he loved them, right? Like why would he fight for them if he didn't care about them, right? Why would he fight for them if he was just going to give them bad stuff anyway, Right? And so for God to to be a warrior should have meant for Israel more things than just he's strong. It should have meant God actually cares about them. God actually listens to them, right? God actually actually, uh, was able to take care of them, right? Sometimes we think God wants to take care of us, but we don't really believe he's able to. God was able to take care of them even when a million people came up against them. And so... This is great, right? Uh, The Lord is a warrior and he fought for Israel. Yeah, that's true, but I'm going to suggest to you that God still wants us to think about him like that, even as Christians. Um, He doesn't want us to forget all of this history, right, of how he fought and won, and how he remembers his people. Um, And I think if we, we consider God as a warrior, we'll be the better for it. God conquers Israel or conquered Israel's enemies. So, what enemies do we see God conquering now, or does God say He conquered for us as Christians? You know, we don't consider ourselves a physical nation, right? We don't have a chunk of land that all the Christians congregate on and claim boundaries for, and we don't have a law of our nation like that. But God does have a people still, right? And they're not the Israelites of old, but they're they're spiritual Israel. And God still does expect to reign as a king for that people, right? But God is also still a warrior for that people. And we see the Bible talks about God, uh, for Christians, he has fought and he will fight. Um, We don't see his fighting being pictured as being done, but we do see the outcome as being sure. You see the difference there? God still maybe has some battles to fight for us, um, some things to do, but he's, he talks about them like they're done. He says, I win, right? One, one enemy and probably the primary enemy that I think we need to consider when we think about God being a warrior for us is death. And sometimes when we talk about death, we kind of lump in this concept of sin, right? Um, with death... There's sin, with sin there's death. It's kind of a hand-in-hand combo the way we understand it. If you go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in your New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, God reveals to us some things about this through Paul's writing here. I just want to uh, focus on a couple verses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26. It reads, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, I'm totally just like pulling this one little phrase out of a big chapter in a big book, right? But the context is the resurrection of the dead. There's all these questions about it. The brethren are like, man, what's this all about? When's it going to happen? What's it going to look like? And Paul's kind of going through this logical system of like, hey, if God... If, we, if there was no resurrection, then we're, we're to be pitied. And if there is a resurrection, then this is what it's going to be like, and this is how God's going to operate. But in that conversation, we get to verse 26, or verse 25, it says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. All right, well, when is that? When will I know that that reign uh, is getting towards its end? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what the resurrection is kind of all about, right? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When death no longer has a grip, there's no more enemies for God to conquer. God conquered Egypt. He conquered the Philistines. He conquered Ethiopia, among a bunch of other nations. But they're all leading us up and taking us to see that God always wins whatever battle he engages in. Even when it's an enemy, so nebulous is death, right? Like, I can't put my hands on death. There's no, like, million death soldiers that I see God fight, like Ethiopia, right? But God says even when he sets his sights on death, he conquers it. Do I really think about God as such a valiant warrior that even if he puts his, uh, his eyes and he sets his battle against something like death, that he's going to win that fight? Do you think about that? But God is such a good fighter. He's such a strong warrior that he's even able to beat something like death. In verse 54, it reiterates this. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's an important connection for us to make. Did you know that Jesus is kind of a, I don't know how to say this, but is a weapon of the Lord? You know, I think about Jesus as so many things, but I don't know if I ever think about him as being like the ultimate weapon of God. You know? But when God fights all these other enemies, He didn't bring out Jesus. Like it wasn't like Jesus was revealed in the time of Egypt to conquer, uh, in the time of Exodus to conquer Egypt. He didn't need Jesus to manifest Himself that way. But then when it came time to fight sin and death, we see Jesus come out, and it's made plain to us how He does that. I I think Jesus here is pictured as this kind of this ultimate weapon of God. As, as he is the weapon, he is also God, and so we kind of see this, this weird thing happening where God is the warrior, but he's also the weapon, and he destroys death, right? And so this is important for us as Christians or as people that are considering being Christians. Wherever you find yourself this morning, it's, it's important to make this connection that Jesus is the tool or the person that conquers death, and there's some applications I want us to make about this. So, how does God, how does God's victory over death affect me? We know that God says, "I defeat death through Jesus." So, how does that affect me? Right? If He's a warrior, what does that mean for me? First of all, this, the, the most basic step I think that we, we see in this is he sho- that shows me my need to join with God in His victory. If God defeats death, if I want to have any hope of victory over death, I have to be on God's side. Did you know that God doesn't lose battles? I've been saying that all the way through, but if you really think about that, if you're not on God's side of the battle, what side are you on? The losing side of the battle, right? God doesn't lose. His enemies are conquered. So if you want to not be with death on the losing side of the battle, but you want to be with God, defeating death, then you need to get on God's side of the battle. And by that I mean, you need to follow God. Now there's a lot that we don't have time to get into with that this morning about what it is to follow God. Um, But if you're not following God, if you know there's stuff that God tells you to do and you're not doing it, you need to address that. If you know there's things God is saying don't do and you're doing it, You need to change that. Now, certainly anyone in this room can help you come to an understanding about what those things are and aren't. People are happy to do that. I'd be happy to talk with you about that. I'd be happy to pray with you and all those things that come with that, you trying to overcome your will and do God's. But know that if you don't, you're on the losing side of the battle. You're not going to conquer death with God. God's going to conquer you and death. So that's application number one. If we understand God is a warrior, that puts pressure on me to get on his side of the battle. Application number two. How does God's victory over death affect me? It helps me learn to trust God's leadership. Doesn't it? And what I mean by that is, we don't have to worry that some of his teachings don't make sense. right? Like maybe Turning the other cheek doesn't make any sense to me. I need to stick up for myself. right? Or maybe this whole baptism thing looks just ridiculous. And so I'm not going to have any part in that. Right? Or maybe uh, I like to sleep around and God says don't do that, but that's just old-fashioned, so I'm going to do it anyway. Right? If I know God is a warrior and he never loses, then that helps me to trust in his leadership. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to defeat the enemy. If the enemy's death, then I need to listen to his instruction and how to overcome that, and how to be a part of his victory, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we're already here, and verse 55 reads, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, Listen to this part. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Doesn't it feel like sometimes working for the Lord's in vain? If you're being honest about it, don't you have those moments where you're like, turning the other cheek is useless? Right? Fornication is what I want. I want to sleep around. This is in vain, right? Trust in God's leadership. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? If you trust that God is able to deliver that victory, then you read verse 58 and you're resolved to do that. Application number three How does God's victory over death affect me? It helps me accept the role he's given me. This is tied very tightly into this leadership, right? I can trust God's leadership. But if God says, hey, hey, Josh, the role I'm giving you is to be humble, right? is to be lowly, not to take revenge yourself, but just let me handle that, if I don't trust that God is a warrior who wins his battles, I'm going to have a really hard time accepting that role. Right? Because if he's not going to win the battle, I need to win the battle. right? You're going to treat me wrong. I've got to get back. right? Um, and, uh, in Romans chapter 12, it kind of addresses this concept a little bit. If you want to turn there with me. Romans chapter twelve. Let's read this quickly. Beginning in verse 14 Bless those who persecute you. Who wants to do that? If I don't have somebody fighting on my behalf, I'm not doing that. Right? Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. No way, man. If you don't agree with me, there is no harmony, right? do not be haughty but associate with the lowly definitely not going to do that never be wise in your own sight that's crazy repay no one evil for evil well unless they do something bad to me right but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all well as long as they live peaceably with me right (laughs) beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of god but what if they do something really, really bad? Like, not just kind of bad, but really bad. Don't I have permission then? Vengeance is mine, I will repair you, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. Well, he never fed me. Right. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you'll heat burning coals on his head. I don't want to heat burning coals on his head. I want to, like, throw him in the the burning coal heap, right? Those were all silly things to say when you're reading this, right? Like I was was being silly, but they're kind of things we think sometimes if we're being honest about it. If I don't really believe that God fights and wins his battles, I'm not going to do any of that stuff. So if I don't consider sometimes in my life, if I don't think that God is a valiant and victorious warrior, I'm going to have a really hard time implementing some of this stuff in my life. I'm going to have a hard time not seeking revenge because I don't really trust that God will do it for me. right? So, how does God, the uh, great warrior's victory over death, affect me? And it helps me accept the role that he's given me. and all of us, he's given Romans 12 2. Don't seek revenge. Bless those who persecute you. Uh, feed... Uh, or give food to those who are hungry, even if they're your enemy, etc., etc. To confidently live a persecuted and humiliate, humiliated life, we need to trust that God will defeat evildoers. Um, also, how does God's victory over death affect me? helps me trust that God knows how to get us through a battle. If I know that God is a warrior, And he's fought a lot of battles before I ever existed. And he's going to fight some more even after I'm gone from the earth. right? And he's always winning those battles. Won't I then be more willing to listen to his suggestions on how to survive a battle? And God survived all of them so far. So, when you turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The armor of God is the thing that I want because he never dies. Every time he goes into a battle, it's his enemies that are dying, not God. So if God says, hey, take my armor, I'm taking that stuff without a question. right. Well, what does he say that armor is? For for we don't wrestle against flesh and uh, blood, But against the rulers and authorities, against cosmic powers and over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, sounds like he's preparing us to fight against death and sin to me. Verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Shoes having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times with prayer and supplication. You know, if God says, here's the armor that you need to survive the battle that you're in, having won every battle and survived every battle he's been involved with, won't I pay attention to that? Like, wouldn't I take that a little more seriously if I believe he actually fights and wins battles and then he's trying to tell me what my armor should be? I think that I would pay attention to that. You know, um, I've I've never really known a great warrior in my life personally, but I've known some people that were great in their field. Like, for instance, I've known some great artists. I've known some great engineers. I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, and there's a bunch of engineers there. I mean, it's kind of annoying sometimes because there's nothing but technical answers for things, right? But, like, if I needed something done that had any kind of aspect of engineering to it, I always trusted their input. I always trusted the methods that they would tell me to implement to get something done. I remember once I was working on my car, and so I was like, I know who to ask, right? So I went to church, and I asked a few people that I knew were engineers, I took their word seriously, right? Because they worked on cars and they knew how engineering works and they knew basic mechanics and I listened to them. If God is a warrior and he fights battles all the time, ones I see and ones I don't see, and he tells me, here's the armor that you need, am I going to listen to him? So God's victory over death helps me to know that God can get me through a battle. God's victory over death how does it affect me helps me to know that God does not allow evil to go unpunished don't we struggle with that a lot a lot of bad stuff going on in the world and it has for a long time and I'm sure it will beyond if, if we if God gives the earth more time beyond us bad stuff's going on don't you ever wonder why like bad why good things happen to bad people you ever wonder that have you ever stopped to wonder why good things happen to you then It's always kind of a sobering thought. Um, But seriously, if I know God wins battles and that he defeats his enemies, and that's a key part of him being a warrior is because he has enemies. If I believe that, then I know evil will not go unpunished because evil is God's enemy. It's kind of a natural, logical progression. If God is good, wherever there's bad, God will defeat it. Right. In, in the book of Revelation we've, we've done some studying from this book in recent weeks but we haven't gotten to chapter 6 but in chapter 6 um, in verse 9 Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 we're kind of wrapping up here look at verse 9 Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 when he opened the fifth seal I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness of they had borne. Alright, so it seems like they've lost the battle, kind of, right? They were killed for the word of God. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you'll judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Looks like God's losing the battle here, doesn't it? Like, all of his soldiers that, from what we can see, paid attention to God and probably put on the armor of God, right, are being killed off. It seems kind of like they're losing the battle. And they start to wonder, God, aren't you going to do anything about the bad stuff going on? What's God's answer? Well, at the very end of that, he says, there's a timing to this, right? Till the number of their brothers should be complete. Who were to be killed? Wait a minute, God! You want us? You want some more people to die like like we did? You know, when you get to a little bit later in the book, God doesn't just like leave this question hanging. He actually answers it in this book. And as you move through this book, you get into uh, a few chapters later, like chapter twelve, and you have a really like crazy picture of a dragon and a woman and all this stuff going on but that begins to answer their question it be, they say you know how much longer and god you see all these these seals come around and then chapter 12 god starts defeating people right if you go to chapter uh, 19 of revelation the picture of jesus is not one that we typically think about revelation 19 jesus looks like this this scary warrior Jesus where blood's like dripping off his robe and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes are like fire and all this stuff and the implication or the, the inference that we make from that is that blood is not his blood it's the blood of his enemies right we often think about Jesus' blood but that's the blood of his enemies and even after he's shown and he invites people to this marriage supper there's like two verses about oh yeah and he defeats a lot more people that rise up in the middle of the supper right right if we really believe that Jesus or God is a warrior and that he always wins, it helps me to know that God is not allowed evil to go and punish. Just like the picture in Revelation 16. God, are you going to do something about this? And Revelation is about answering that. Yes, he wins. He defeats all of his enemies. Even the big ones that look like nobody could defeat. Right, The dragon or the great harlot Babylon. Right, He defeats them, no problem. Throws them into the lake of fire. We can be at peace because we know God does what's right, right? In the last application, how does God's victory over death affect me shows me that we won't be left in enemy territory or lost in the fray. You know, don't you kind of worry about that sometimes, like in great battles? Like if you were a participant in World War II, I think I would have been afraid of just kind of getting lost in the shuffle. Like friendly fire or... Being left in enemy territory or being captured and forgotten about. Like that kind of stuff, maybe more than actual battle, like would scare me. Getting forgotten or left on the wrong side or being shot by my own man in the fray of the battle, right? God doesn't do that stuff. Do you have you noticed that in his battles? Like he never like accidentally kills his own people? Or, you know, he, his sword's so sharp and he's just kind of like blindly swinging it around that he hits some of his own. Or that those who die in the battle, God forgets about them. You no, know, he gives them a white robe and says, hey, rest a little longer, right? As glorious as God is of a warrior and how victorious he is, there's never any casualties lost on his side. There's never any confusion about who's on his side. And that should give me a, as confidence as a Christian. If I'm a Christian, then I can know that I'm not going to be forgotten about in, in the chaos of the battle. Or that I'm going to suffer some friendly fire from the Lord. Right? God sees me and he knows I'm his. And I don't have to worry about that. Alright. So how does God, being a great warrior, and his victory over death affect me? If I'm not a Christian, I need to join his side, right? Or I'm his enemy. If I am a Christian, I need to tr- it helps me learn to trust God's leadership. It helps me accept the role that he's given me. It helps me trust that God knows how to get me through a battle, right? It helps me know that God does not allow evil to go unpunished. We see him defeating evil. And it shows me that I won't be left in enemy territory or lost in the fray. So, Can't we see just... And those are things I came up with. I'm sure you could come up with more. Can't we see if we really picture God as being a valiant warrior who always wins his battles and fights for his people, how much more confident we can be as believers when we think of that imagery, the confidence that it gives us to know that God does defeat evil, that we can be on his side, that we can share in victory, that he is leading us. He knows how to win fights. Sometimes I think... We get so wrapped up in uh, lopsided images of God that we think we're constantly losing, right? And because we, we get so wrapped up in the world that we feel like, you know, Christians are just a bunch of losers in the literal sense, like we just lose all the time. But if we really dwell on this picture of God being a warrior, then really we'd feel like winners, right? Right? We'd feel the victory that God brings, and we would know that there's more in store. And so we could be better, better followers of him with this confidence. If we learn to remember that, uh, remember that God's a warrior, it, uh, we will be more faithful, more zealous, and more confident, I think. At least me personally. I, I lack in those areas, and so I found thinking on this helps me. If you've not pledged yourself to God... I'm using army terms here. If you've not pledged yourself to God, right? You stand as an enemy because, you, because of your sins. And you know what? God doesn't lose to his enemies. And so you have a decision to make. Is God going to defeat me? Or I'm going to be with God and I'm going to defeat sin? That's the decision you have to make. If you have become a Christian at some point and you haven't done a great job of like sticking with God, you've forgotten to wear the armor of God. you've ignored his commandments. Well then kind of recommit yourself to that, because you as well stand as an enemy of God at the moment. If you have sin in your life and I think viewing God as a warrior finally helps gives us give us. Uh, the appropriate concept of sin. It's something that God defeats. It's not something He tolerates. It's not something that He's uh, just lenient on and just turns a blind eye to. And if sin's in your life, God has a battle with you, right? And so that gives us some urgency in dealing with that. So if you find that in your life, deal with it this morning. And this time that Richard's going to lead us in a song is a time that's been designed for you to consider the message and just consider your relationship with the Lord. And if during this song you think something needs to be done, reach out to somebody next to you, and they can, uh, can uh, help you with that. Richard?